You're watching Global Trade This Week with Pete Mento and Doug Draper. Hello and welcome to another edition of Global Trade This Week. My name is Doug Draper. I'm one of your hosts. And uh, we have a special guest host with us uh, this go around. Keenan, what is going on, my friend? How are you doing? I'm doing well. It is uh, good to be back here on this side of the camera in uh, Pete's absence here today. Uh, looking forward to our discussion today, and I hope I can live up to Pete's high expectations. <laughs> I'm, sure, I'm sure he'll make some type of nighty comment as usual, but uh, for our, our listeners, uh, Pete has a busy World Trade Week. I think if you remember from la last week's episode, he spoke about some speaking engagements that he has. And um, the cool thing about this, uh, uh, Keenan, is it's called Global Trade This Week. So we have to get this thing done every week so our audience knows what we're thinking about, what uh, what's going on out there in the world in global trade. So um, we had to keep it going, and I appreciate you uh, filling in. It's awesome to see you. Absolutely. It's great to have these discussions. Uh, it's good to share information and hopefully provide some educational information to our audience, though. I really enjoy the opportunity to learn and look up what's going on in the world, additionally, yeah. above and beyond what we normally do on a day-to-day -day basis. Yeah, it's a bit of a segue sure. from what you were just saying, Pete, having a, a busy week in global trade. Uh, my first topic here today is a little bit of a slowdown in global trade from the perspective of China. So headline being China's major, major trade expo struggles to draw buyers. So for the last couple of years during the pandemic, um, with all the COVID rules, China's largest fair didn't happen in person. Um, now this year, uh, about a couple of weeks ago, I think April 15th was when it started. It's a big, you know, suppliers and buyers all meet together and it's still massive. I mean, they did $25 billion worth of transactions, but that's significantly lower than what it was 10 plus years ago at 38 billion. Mm -hmm. So they brought it back after a couple of year hiatus. Some is now online, but online and in, in person at the fair was much lower than where they left off in 2019. And so this kind of ties to some discussions that I've heard you and Pete cover um, a while back. And it'll also a little bit tie into my second topic in the second half. But it's a uh, kind of big news that, you know, there's lots of suppliers there, but not as many buyers. Um, seems like the buyers from the US and the European Union are lower than before. Not to say there's none. There's obviously lots of businesses still sourcing and buying and attending these trade shows. 25 billion is a lot. But when you see mm -hmm. it drop down from 38 billion, you see a pretty clear trend. And perhaps that trend had already been in place as uh, uh, wages have been increasing, quality of life has been increasing in China, and that's eroding what historically had been their competitive edge of low-cost manufacturing. You know, they're trying to transition more to a consumer economy, to intellectual property development. And so it's interesting trends, but as this uh, trade show is just <laughs> wrapping up, uh, the news I want to bring here to the show is that it's struggling to find buyers. So interesting yeah. developments there with uh, China and exports. Yeah, no, it's a great topic. I'm glad I'm glad that you uh, you brought it up. And when I was um, when you uh, uh, shared the the topic, a couple things came in mind with the global trend of trade shows, right? Specifically here in Colorado, um, the outdoor retailer show is something I think that you and I mm -hmm. can both uh, relate to, but 
you know, COVID as an accelerator that we spoke about during COVID and all the different trends, supply chain related and, and, and otherwise, is that I think people just in general engage with trade shows differently now. I think they realize that business can, can press on without having to invest um, human resources and, and dollars to go. So I think it's a natural progression, you know, as, as things have, have moved. Um, we always talk about the, um, uh, you know, the, the economy is goods and services. Goods were right. very heavy during COVID. People wanted their stuff, right? They wanted to have some comfort with um, things they could touch and feel. I think garden gnomes was actually a reference in that article. <laughs> yeah, you know, I was kind of a random, that too. <laughs> yeah, kind of a random, you know, a bunch of stuff that we really don't need um, out there. And then things switch, switch to, to services. But, you know, the amount of goods that are still in the supply chain, right, that are still impacted in lots of warehousing space, being in that industry, warehousing specifically, mm-hmm. there's a lot of buildings and a lot of warehouses that are full of stuff. And um, yep. they're trying to push that through. Um, so I think that had something to do with it. And with the slowing economy, if you're sourcing garden gnomes and I'm the factory that's producing it for you, Keenan, and mm-hmm. I realize there's a downturn, I may be reaching out to you proactively and saying, hey, you know, uh, what's your garden gnome situation in 2023? So I think warehouse is stocked that, up. Um, <laughs> We're full. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's Exactly. We, we, we need better gnomes out there, everything else. So I think just the way people engage with trade shows differently, I think there's still a lot of goods in the supply chain. And uh, albeit maybe not as strong as the other topics, but I still think that there's some travel concerns to China. Yeah, a lot of that's been lifted, but I think there's just like some uncertainty with businesses like what's this trade war? Uh, is yep. it safe to travel? Um, so I think that has something to do with it. Uh, but that's a great topic and a solid observation for sure. Well, thanks. And there's a, a couple additional things we could keep talking on it, but it kind of expands into our next topic. So we'll kind of keep this conversation going in the second half. What yeah. do you have for us for yeah. the first topic today? Right. This one was interesting and, and um, it's related to Bed Bath & Beyond and the situation with them filing bankruptcy. Um, and I kind of referred to this as, you know, are they going out swinging? Are they leaving the ring swinging and throwing haymakers out there? And I'm specifically referring to the fact that they're suing uh, a couple of steamship lines um, and saying that their lack of performance or, um, you know, some of the delays in, in the supply chain is a direct relationship of the problems that they had and um, is one of the reasons why. They had to file uh, a bankruptcy. So um, I, I don't know the exact amounts, and, and you may have in there. I think one of the lawsuits is maybe seven or eight million. One of them is closer to 30 million um, with uh, Yang Ming uh, steamship lines. But the, the two things that came into play with that one is number one, is that kind of a Bush League move on the way out, or is it brilliant positioning from a business perspective? So uh, I'll take both those topics, uh, hmm. and then I'll get your opinion on it. All right. So now the first one, me personally, Bush league move, right? They're kind of playing the victim card, uh, for lack of, uh, lack of vision within the organization, maybe some poor decision-making with not pivoting to the way the consumers are buying it. So, and, and, you know, I don't want to go down a, a rabbit hole on this one, but it just seems this is my personal opinion. 
Um, the, the societal trend is to blame others for failure. It's not my fault. Um, if this would have happened, I would have been able to succeed. So um, it's interesting. So part of me is like, you know what, guys, come on. You made some bad decisions. Things didn't work out your way. And let's, uh, you know, go off quietly into the night. But then from a business perspective, Keenan, could be a brilliant move. Hey, business is business. And um, they owe a lot of debtors a lot of money. And if they can, um, you know, get some of the, the money that's owed from some deep pockets that has made a lot of headlines in the in the recent years with uh, the steamship lines just breaking it in as far as uh, record profits. Hey, you know what? Kind of a brilliant move. Let's see what, throw it on the wall and see what sticks. So I don't know. I got both sides of that. My personal opinion is, is uh, a Bush League approach to it, but the business perspective, which is what Bed Bath & Beyond is, is a business. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's a brilliant move to try to, uh, you know, look at every angle where they could possibly generate some revenue to better their position with uh, with the debtor. So I don't know. What's your take on it? Yeah, trying to put on both of those perspectives. I think I side more so with your your first, but giving the steel man argument to the good roles in it, um, you know, the company's going under. So I think it's more about the individual managers or C-level execs trying to avoid blame and responsibility in order to maintain their exit package. Um, while there is probably the the interest of shareholders and people holding the debt that want to be paid, um, I don't know that their interests are being primarily served uh, from the whole bankruptcy and the business not performing well to begin with. So I wonder if it's more yeah. of golden parachute hopes um, if the business was still going, you would hope that leaders would be more um, uh, taking responsibility uh, in the terms of right, Jocko right. Willink doing the more extreme ownership. You know, this is our fault. We didn't anticipate this. Sure. But we could have done this. We should do this better. But when the company is going bankrupt, do you know, are they filing more just bankruptcy for debt relief and reorgan- reorganizing? Are they planning on still being a brand and a company or are they just going under? I haven't I haven't read that far. Yeah, it's chapter 11 from my understanding, but they're closing all their stores. So I don't they know what that means. They are closing all their stores. So maybe the brand will come yeah. back, but it won't be the same business. Yeah. yeah. I mean, <clears throat> this kind of reminds me of the first topic where there were undoubtedly unprecedented changes with the pandemic and pandemic response policies and trade war situations, though a lot of the effects from those unprecedented surprises have been to accelerate pre-existing trends, kind of like trade shows. I think trade shows were already kind of going down. There's some exceptions, you know, big consumer electronic shows or things that get a ton of attention. But for the average trade show, I think people had been realizing they could do Zoom calls or teleconferencing or other ways of even going person to person and, uh, you know, face-to-face type meetings without the expense mm-hmm. and the overhead of those uh, older models, the internet can connect buyers and um, suppliers in new ways that uh, wasn't possible 50 years ago when trade shows were also still a thing. So some of those uh, changes are likely to to be seen. Bed Bath & Beyond, I mean, I haven't been into one of those in a long time. I don't buy <laughs> yeah. a lot of that type of stuff, but if I were, I'd probably buy it online and I probably wouldn't buy it from Bed Bath & Beyond. So um, they yeah. can try to blame the weather and pandemics and uh, trade war policies or uh, shipping lines. They're going after 7 million, it looked like, uh, from Yang Ming and 31, almost 32 from OOCL. I mean, yeah. they're significant numbers, but would 
if they got those, would that totally have changed their business trajectory? I don't know that that would have been the difference of them being a successful business or not. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I would agree. And your comments about where you're going to buy your, um, your kitchen and bathroom supplies is, is just a microcosm of their problem. They didn't, they didn't pivot fast enough. And, mm-hmm. you know, I can get my George Foreman grill online and I don't have to worry about the headache of, of uh, jumping in the car. So and you've mentioned we'll, other yep. interesting models of uh, groups like Kohl's, I think that was teaming up with Amazon for reserve returns and that kind of like, uh, I forgot the acronyms mm-hmm. you've used, but you like bring your online goods back for returns in a location. I think yeah. I actually walked around and looked at some other stuff from Kohl's, like it's one of those models where it actually got me in a store to make a return. And then, you know, I don't know that Bed Bath tried anything like that, but I know I hadn't been yeah. in one for at least a decade. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <Ow>. <laughs> there you go. That's it. Uh, well, I'll, well, we'll switch the halftime here. And since you work for the organization that helps put this on, I will do the hype, which is, um, you know, cap logistics, putting all this together for us. And what you personally do, Keenan, is uh, is yeoman's work with uh, putting up with Pete and myself and getting this thing out there. So we appreciate cap. We appreciate you. And Thank you. Um, visit caplogistics.com for some of your supply chain and transportation needs. So um, I'll jump in on this one and then we'll uh, we'll go back and forth on the halftime. And I could have sworn Keenan, it feels like six months ago we were talking about the Oracle from Omaha and uh, Berkshire Hathaway, uh, That's right. you know, uh, annual shareholder meeting. But that did happen um, this, this weekend, and uh, I figured I'd just bring up some fun facts. I got a buddy in college that is a freelance photographer. He lives in Lincoln, Nebraska, and he's done a lot of work with the University of Nebraska and the Big 12 Conference, and he was able to... Um, do a deal at the event this weekend. And he said they had a, uh, a, a gecko in a suit since one of the, uh, the investments for Berkshire is, is Geico insurance. And um, he was there for three days. He took 1,587 pictures of people walking up and putting their arm around the gecko and, and taking <laughs> some pictures. So based on the time that he was on the ground snapping, he said it was one picture every 32 seconds. Um, wow. Which is absolutely just, just, just crazy that, uh, that people would want to, you know, do that gimmick, but that got me thinking Keenan. So here's a couple other, other, uh, statistics based on, uh, Buffett's comments. And I'm just picturing like this old grandfather on, you know, a just big rocking chair on the porch, eating ice cream or sipping coffee or something you know, providing some, uh, some wisdom. That's what he sips yeah. on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was grandkids. So here's here's some of the advice that I heard uh, that he had said is that, um, you know, banks, uh, lots of tomfoolery going on out there. And, um, you know, the regulations need to be buttoned up and kind of a slap on the wrist. It's kind of like back in my day, again, picturing them on the porch. Back in my day, you could trust your bank and blah, 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 blah. So um, he's challenging. Can can banks moving forward be trusted in their current environment with kind of uh, loose regulations and, and, and risky positionings? Um, he also uh, made a comment that said the U.S. dollar is indeed the champion for reserve currencies. Um, again, your grandfather on the porch talking about back in my day, blah, blah, blah. Um, you know, America. 
So mm-hmm. uh, just continually, maybe that's a side hit on his whole cryptocurrency thing from last year, but um, you know, the dollar is strong. And then um, the one thing that really struck me on this one is that they said that Berkshire Hathaway's portfolio has $151 billion invested into Apple, which is uh, what I had read is about just shy of 50% of Berkshire Hathaway's total total hold, holdings, wow. which strikes me as odd because if you look at the history of, of Berkshire Hathaway and, and, and the comments is that diversification is a safe play. Um, and uh, it doesn't look like Berkshire is very diversified right now. But the Oracle is the Oracle, and and um, you know they got a hell of a lot of money invested in Apple. So anyway, those were kind of a, the, the takeaways I got from uh, this past weekend. Interesting. I didn't realize they were so heavy into Apple. Uh, what first came to mind when you mentioned that is another of uh, his adages talking about invest in what you know in. And historically, that's meant not a lot of tech companies, but I guess Apple's kind of transitioned over into the, this is no longer speculative tech bro VC funded. This is an institution, more of a blue chip, um, deep economy, big, you know, he likes investing in his Coca-Cola's, his railroads, you know, and maybe Apple's the equivalent of that. Uh, when I was mm-hmm. also reading about it, it seems to be they've been doing more stock buybacks and they've been having a little bit of trouble finding good opportunities to invest in. They have a lot of cash and they're not seeing a lot of good investments, maybe a mix of the companies, a mix of the macroeconomic situation. So they've been buying their shares and maybe Apple is one of those, okay, it's tech, but it's old school tech. It's going to be around. It's big. And that's where they're piling in some of their cash besides buying mm-hmm. their own stock back. Um, yeah, just interesting overall takeaways. I thought it was pretty key that he was saying, uh, quote, the majority of our businesses will report lower earnings this year than last year, end quote. So it's one of those mm-hmm. where, uh, you know, maybe tech and some things get hit first, but now while we're not technically in a recession yet, we're still seeing economic growth. The rate of growth is slowing and there's lots of warning bells that you and Pete have been discussing and seeing. And it seems like, that's starting to hit the the Berkshire Hathaway type uh, businesses, which you know, in his philosophy, the value based investing, um, something to that effect, where it's more about like you know core economic drivers, and people often report on uh, Berkshire, Berkshire mm-hmm. because of its correlation to the underlying U.S. economy. So, interesting perspective on that sort of stuff. One other tangent that I wanted to bring up: um, Berkshire Hathaway wholly owns. BNSF as the uh, the railroad. And so it seems like they have had critiques of the uh, Canadian Pacific, Kansas City Southern merger in mm-hmm. you know the fall. They and Union Pacific were talking about like they better take some precautions. There's maybe some issues that are come up in Texas about uh, volume and different things like that. Now, um, not Berkshire Hathaway's railroad, but it looked like maybe just this weekend or last week, Union Pacific uh, reached out and they are uh, trying to appeal that decision um, by the Surface Transportation Board approving that massive merger. So, mm-hmm. I mean, it seemed and news has been reporting and press releases are moving ahead like they're co-branding and they're becoming a company. So maybe it's already approved and inevitable at this point. But Union Pacific is a big player in that space. And um, historically, over 10 years ago, uh, 
Berkshire had had significant stakes in Union. Apparently, they sold out in 2008, 2009, something like that. But they're still in the railroad game. And so mm-hmm. um, it's interesting. There's maybe a little bit of pushback on that merger. It's the first time hearing of it, though. It wouldn't mm-hmm. surprise me that uh, competitors would try to stop a larger, more efficient competitor from cutting in on what was their business. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting take on that one for sure. Cause you're right. The NSF wholly owned uh, by Burke, but yeah, we'll see. I mean, the whole railroad thing, I think the pipeline from, from Mexico through the U S up to Canada mm-hmm. is uh, a big deal. So it wouldn't surprise me if all the, uh, the class one railroads get in there and throw their punches around. So that's still, still interesting to see what happens. So cool. All right. Absolutely. Well, I'm going to jump in. Yeah. I'm going to jump in my, um, my next topic, Sounds which good. is, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's related. It's got a lot of hype in the last week is, um, flex sports, uh, acquisition of Shopify and their logistics arm, including deliver, which is their final mile solution. And the new term, uh, Keenan that I've heard out there is port to porch port, like ocean port <laughs> yeah. P-O-R-T, to porch. It's clever. Sure. I haven't heard that one yet. <laughs> yeah, port to port. You know, endless aisle was kind of the Amazon thing where you could shop on anything you'd wanted online. So, port to porch. So, a uh, couple of key thoughts on that one. Um, number one, I think Shopify is very smart to get rid of those things. <clears throat> Obviously, you know, they started as a, a tech, you know, a, a, a digitally native, if you will, uh, company that started with tech and then started expanding. I think they realized that may not be the right play. And um, so now they're kind of staying in their lane, focusing on the tech side, and they're realizing that it's not going to work, which I get. I think that's smart. Uh, that's how businesses pivot, which is what Bed Bath & Beyond did not do, which was our first mm-hmm. topic. Um, the one piece that I think people may not have seen and I wanted to call out is that Shopify still gets 13% equity stake in the new, the, the new um, uh, relationship. And what, what I'm going to do, and I'm going to coin this phrase, and I know Pete loves it when I do these things, is that they're going to pull a Hamilton. And what I mean by that is Hamilton, um, uh, the, the, uh, the musical, okay. where they says they want to have a seat in the room where it happens, right? So uh, they're going to have a board seat. So there's some ownership there. They're going to have uh, the ability to be in the room where it happens and help navigate this, which I think is, again, in my opinion, very smart. Um Another thing I just realized when I was doing a little research on this is that the current CEO of Flexport is a guy named David Clark, and he's from Amazon. And Mm. he was one of the uh, gurus that kind of really expanded the delivery arm of Amazon. And um, I think he's, um, I don't think I know, he's got a decree to say, let's redo it again. So um, they got the freight forwarding side, which is the proverbial port. Mm -hmm. And now they're acquiring the, the delivery arm which is the proverbial porch, which is kind of the first major player to take a step. You know, Amazon has kind of always had the opportunity to acquire, really develop, or do something on the freight forwarding and the transportation side on the front end of the supply chain. And that's never really, really transpired. So maybe this is the first entree into a true port to porch logistics. And David Clark seems to have his act together. He's certainly proven that with his relationship uh, and what he did, did over at Amazon. So it could be interesting to see, but um, port to porch. And I'll give Shopify some credit for knowing when to call it 
when to throw in the towel and still be in a position with the uh, with a 13% equity and having a, a board seat. I, I think that's a smart move and I, I like it. Yeah, it makes sense. You know, them doing their logistics right away kind of reminds me of Amazon where they're trying to do some integration beyond their core business, though, from my understanding, Shopify is huge, but they're not Amazon huge. And so maybe it does mm -hmm. make more sense to let uh, some transportation and logistics experts be more of the management while they hold on to some of the, the strategic equity since they are driving a lot of sales. And maybe that could be a strategic advantage that they get special rates or different things potentially, um, mm -hmm. but they don't have to manage it and have kind of a loss or a distraction from their core business function there. Yeah. So yeah, very interesting, interesting move. Um, yeah, it looks like just for reference on size, it looks like Shopify uh, announced 197 billion for 2022, mm. which is a lot. It's a lot, but <laughs> yeah. I, I doubt it's as large as Amazon. And so yeah, Amazon revenue yeah. was more 514 billion. Um, yeah. So yeah, over double. Well, I mean, Shopify's catching up. I guess a lot of people are using that. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, that's interesting play. We'll see for both parties, uh, meaning uh, Flexport. We'll see. We'll see how that rolls. So, all right. Absolutely. Well, bring us home, Keenan. Tell us what you got for your second topic. Yeah. So, kind of tying into our halftime and uh, my first topic, um, we're seeing more global supply chains shifting to Mexico, India, and Vietnam. Again, some of these uh, trends had already been in place before the pandemic, but pandemic and trade war only kind of escalated that existing trend where now companies having experienced uh, shortages, you just can't get something at any price or containers coming from China costing upwards over 30 grand per 40 foot container, um, which is pretty wild. Um, yeah. People have been looking into diversifying their supply chain and they're now moving towards you know, countries like India and Vietnam for some high tech or really low cost um, manufacturing, kind of the replacements of China. Um, also a shift towards Mexico, where it's globalization, but it's more regional globalization where people, decision makers are thinking, okay, maybe manufacturing slightly more in Mexico, we have to set some stuff up, but there won't be risk of exposure to ocean freight changes if that ever binds up again with pandemic or all out war trade wars. Um, mm -hmm. And so, you know, now we're having more railroads connecting Canada, yep. US, Mexico, we have the new NAFTA, what is it the US Mexico, USMCA, US Mexico, Canada agreement. Um, I think they changed the orders in the respective countries. Um, but people <laughs> yeah. are moving. People are moving those. And to the point of something that a uh, you and Pete have discussed before, sometimes companies will move to Mexico or Vietnam, but ultimately they're still working with a Chinese company. Um, China mm -hmm. is aware of this trend and has been investing in manufacturing facilities, locations within Vietnam, within Mexico. I'm not sure what their relations are with India, if they're allowed or not allowed too much in there, but if they can, I'm sure they would be. Um, so that's something to keep in mind. Um, maybe you're okay with your supply chain coming from a Chinese company, but if it comes from Mexico, that reduces your risk. But if you're worried about political, geopolitical risk, you know, with everything going on in Taiwan, increasing flights and kind of tensions around there, you know, I'm still of the opinion, I wouldn't imagine it's in the best interest of either China or US to try to escalate 
into an actual war. Um, but there are definitely the lingering effects of the trade war, even as some of the uh, things are, aren't as tight as they used to be. Trade's not where it was before that. And there are future concerns, chip act type things and all this different mm-hmm. stuff that could play into it. So, um, yeah, we're seeing moves towards Mexico and India and Vietnam. There's also a great uh, Wendover video I will link in the show notes and description um, about how Mexico is becoming the new China. And so part of it is becoming China with uh, large investments into industrial parks and different things, um, kind of like what South Korea has done and Japan has done before them, making you know my Japanese truck Tacoma uh, Toyota was produced in Mexico, you know, like they've Mm -hmm. kind of pioneered that model as well. Um, But it's interesting, we're seeing more and more near shoring or friend shoring. So there's the location aspect of buffering against logistic shocks. And then there's also the friend shoring, um, where it's more of the what politically is going to be okay, are we gonna end up in a fight with China? You know, I don't feel like a lot of people want that. But some people are trying to diversify their supply chain away from that. So if you are going to Mexico, you know, maybe it's okay to have a Chinese manufacturer. Maybe you want to get away from it. So interesting trend to, to keep an eye on. It's been a slow moving thing, but it's speeding up here now with pandemic and uh, logistic shock waves and potential geopolitical risk. I don't know. What are your initial yeah. thoughts on some of that stuff? Uh, two, well, a couple things, right? We spoke about this before, and I've used this term that, uh, you know, all these companies are not going to fall for the banana in the tailpipe again. That's a uh, Beverly Hills Cop reference uh, for all of those that uh, are north of 40 that may realize that. But anyway, once bitten, twice shy, maybe is a better, uh, a better uh, adage to throw out there. But, you know, no way can my company be in a situation like it was in 2021 um, if I want to keep in business and I want to stay in my C-suite. And the general, I don't really care where my air fryer comes from. And if I can go buy it online and not have it delayed, uh, it comes from Mexico owned by a Chinese factory. The general consumer, in my opinion, could care less. Mm-hmm. And I think the investment with Chinese uh, uh, money investing into Mexico will continue to accelerate. Um, so that's my take on that. And the second piece is I don't think it, well, personally, I don't think it was coincidental because railroads move very slow figuratively and literally, but I, the simple fact of the, uh, the reshoring, nearshoring, friendshoring, and having all of that into Mexico, and mm-hmm. all of a sudden, here's this railroad that's developing this pipeline through the spine of all three countries. I think a little bit of it was um, a little bit of luck um, with, with, with timing, but they are going to be positioned, and if Berkshire Hathaway wants to look at some other investments, um, <laughs> that railroad connection is... Um, you know, it was going to blow up, in my opinion. And we've talked about that in the past. That it's, uh, you know, it, it is a smart play, and I think they are going to be the beneficiaries. They meaning the railroad and that in that uh, acquisition uh, moving forward. But I don't think it's going to go back. You saw it in your first topic related to the trade show in China. We've mm-hmm. seen it with uh, uh, protecting ourselves on the supply chain and larger companies. And the demand of the consumer is not interested in waiting. And companies can't afford to have warehouses full of deep fryers and George Foreman grills. So um, it, it's an accelerator that is a reaction to what happened at COVID. So it's it's not going away. It's pretty. Oh, and the last thing, Keenan, then I'll let you kind of, um, you know, take us out um, is uh, 
geez, I just spaced on it. I had a good topic there and I completely forgot about it. So anyway, um, um maybe anyway, this could jog your memory or oh, something else. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. It was your, it was your Tacoma thing, right? So if there was oh, yeah. a supply chain that's embraced Mexico and understanding the nuances of, of, of manufacturing and some assembly, it's the auto industry. So I think there's mm-hmm. going to be a lot of companies that take that model, try to apply it to their product um, and see, because that has been going on for a while and there's a lot of lessons to be learned there. Absolutely. Auto, heavy manufacturing for heavy equipment, um, increasingly more aerospace and more tech. You know, maybe we'll see some Taiwanese type companies do the same sort of thing, taking their mm-hmm. companies and their know-how of the building of what is often designed in the U.S. for chips. I think we might see more and more of those built nearby in Mexico um, with everything going around the uncertainty with China, Taiwan, um, one country, two system type policies and what that's all going to mean in the the near future, long-term future, five, 10, 50 years. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Good. All right. Keenan, well, you work for the company that puts this on, so I won't put you on the spot and have you close us out. Right. I won't let you. It always comes out better from you anyway. Thank you. (laughs) That's right. Well, anyway, I'll I'll say, as I did before, caplogistics.com, great resource and can't thank the organizations enough uh, for for letting this show happen every single week. So, and obviously we wouldn't be here if people weren't listening to it, commenting on it. So please do so when we post on all of the, uh, the platforms out there. And uh, we look forward to seeing you guys again next week. I think Pete will be back, but if not, Pete or uh, Keenan, you and I will rock the boat again. Absolutely. Uh, thanks again right. for having me on today. Everyone listening, don't forget to uh, like, subscribe, and hit that notification bell. <laughs> there you go. Bing, bang, boom. That's it. That's right. We're going to wrap it up. Thanks, everybody. Appreciate you joining us today. Have a great week. Thanks.